Welcome to PRN's Progressive Radio News Hour. I'm Steve Lenman. A happy new year to all my listeners. Let's hope it's a better one than 2014, although I just wrote an article I got out earlier this morning called The Year Ahead, and I'm afraid I don't really see very much in prospect that gives me much encouragement as to what to expect in the new year. If anything, I think as grim as things look now, they may end up being even grimmer in the year ahead. Andrew, welcome. My, <laughs> my guest is Andrew Colin. I, 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 I nearly kept going, Andrew, without introducing you. Uh, and Andrew, it's great to have you back on again. It's nice to be back on your program again, Steve. Oh, it really is terrific having you back on, and I know there are always things on your mind that you want to discuss, and I am all ears as to what you want to want to prioritize on this program. Please go right ahead. Sure. Feel free to chime in at any time. I want to kind of uh, link the old, old uh, year, the one we're departing, and towards the new year, but um, with a focus on how there is a kind of continuity between what's going on towards the end, at the end of this year, and the beginning of next. Um, it's a subject I know I've, we've both talked about many times on your program, and that is government-sponsored violence. Um, the way I want to talk about it is how it's um, produced on the federal level and also how it's produced at the state and local levels. Specifically, the two aspects of it I want to talk about, which again takes us to um, current events, which I believe will spill into the new year, is the recently released CIA torture report. And I want to discuss the certain aspects of it because it's quite a lengthy document. But I want to bring to the attention of your listeners torture as state policy, get into some of that. The other area which will take us into the use of um, violence at the state and local level is the rather widespread, which I'll only cite some examples, of police violence, especially against persons of color. Now, what I do want to also discuss, which uh, may or may not been thought about, but I've given this some thought as I paid close attention to the release of the report and all these examples of police violence is that they have very much in common and I do want to touch upon some of these aspects as well. Now before I look at the specifics of police violence as well as the business of CIA torture, this to me is one thing that is rather striking that they have in common they both encompass what I call the politics of fear. What I mean is that when such forms of violence, either by torture or by the way in which police have been targeting people of color, the purpose is to instill fear. And that is, you have a government on the federal level through um, sanctioning of torture, and which to me also kind of trickles down to what police violence is. We have on both aspects, um, essentially people who become afraid of government, understandingly, understandably. But in the case of both torture and the police violence, we have certainly instances of a government that proclaims that it has a license to hurt and kill people without restraint. Certainly I see this in the police shootings, which to me is quite shocking, given is what I'll talk about a little later, the um, very how do you say, sporadic, very, very little prosecution that has been done. 
Andrew, well, I wrote I wrote I wrote several articles recently about police violence. Torture is a, is is a topic I wrote about at the beginning of when I began writing about a decade ago, and really got into it during the Bush years. But I wrote about police violence more recently, and one of the shocking statistics is that all the statistics are underreported. But one of the shocking statistics is is, is a black person in America, uh, most likely a black youth, is killed by either police or security forces or security guards or or uh, these type people. One, one black person dying uh, about every 28 hours, and I think the numbers are way understated, Andrew. Yes, exactly, because there is little reporting, and yes. to me that's just slightly suspicious. And I do want to elaborate what you're saying with these police shootings that, of course, they are targeting primarily people of color, but I think there is a not-so-subtle message being sent that people of color are the perceived enemies. And I say so for very, to me, obvious political reason, that they represent a potential threat to the white power structure. And that also, I want to touch upon, and again, keep this relationship going, which I said at the start of the program, to this business of um, government-sponsored terrorism. But again, I want to take a closer look at both these things, get into more specificity at the torture report and certainly the police uh, shootings. I do want to say, and again, I want to keep my comments in the limited time that we have as brief and concise as I possibly can, but I do want to start off to say that there's a troubling history behind this wholesale use of torture as government policy. But before you look at all the disturbing particulars, some of which I'll touch upon of U.S. torture policy in the present time, I would like us just to very briefly, it is very briefly, step back And I suggest what you find is a historical pattern um, that we see not just the torture of so-called terrorists, but as far back as the beginning of the founding of the republic, uh, this government has been torturing Native Americans, has been torturing slaves and criminals and so many other people, even before, you know, certainly before we had Miranda. But even outside the United States, let us have a little historical perspective Um, past and present. Our government has given support to and participated in torture to uphold Latin American dictatorships. I could rattle off a few of the more notorious dictatorships that the U.S. and CIA torture programs have uh, have, uh, upheld. Argentina, Chile, Uruguay, Paraguay, Bolivia, Brazil, to name uh, just a few. But again, in um, more recent times, that is the the Bush era, we have the torture of civilians in Iraq, in uh, Guantanamo, Abu Ghraib, and the notorious CIA black sites. So this is ongoing, and this to me is one of the more troubling aspects. There is a historical continuity uh, in torture. Um, But what is also interesting, what I want to get to and focus on more of the particulars, is what's contained in some aspects, not all, because I do want to qualify my statements, in the CIA torture report. What it does reveal, what little it does reveal, because 
I'm sure, Steve, as you've probably seen it, a lot is redacted. To me, that's... Oh, indeed. indeed. Yeah, indeed. much it's troubling in and of like 6,000 pages. Exactly. And, and yet the most important stuff is redacted, so yes. people don't know. But, but I, I, think, I think most people can fill in between the lines. There's so much other information out there that, uh, that uh, it's pretty easy for people with, with minimal research to really get an idea of just how brutal America is. Exactly. But even if you step just... Um, digress um, beyond the torture report, um, certainly what's not included, but there's little disclosure regarding the widespread use of torture in the large U.S. prison industrial complex. Um, But I do want to also touch upon that there is torture not just in the prison system, but certainly to me not discussed enough by the corporate media. It's you have a lot of torture for uh, uh, by done to people, especially people of color and poorer folks, that have been placed in police custody. But what I'm saying is that torture just is not confined just to report itself, but it touches upon the use of torture by the police. Um, that's where you get the crossover, and that's where um, we have some very troubling examples I do want to touch upon, which also shows a continuity not just in the use of torture in the CIA documents, but also in the use of torture by police forces around the United States. And there's a lot of what I call linkages here, a lot of common threads in how um, various police departments have used torture, um, some of which I'm sure you're aware of being a Chicagoan, if I can call you that. Oh, you're it, probably it, aware of uh, an individual by the name of John Burge, B-U-R-G-E. Oh, yes, I remember him, and I wrote about him. It's been a good while, uh, Andrew, yes. but, but I wrote about him, uh, this, this police thug who engaged in torture. Yes, exactly, and he was charged with routinely torturing up to, listen carefully, 200 prisoners. Uh, especially African-Americans during various police interrogations in the 70s and the 80s, okay? And horrible things were done, which to me constitutes a, a police use of torture. People were beaten, with, which I recall, with telephone books, cattle prods. Um, and these cattle prods, they were giving people electric shocks. So again, we're not speaking of torture just to the torture report, but linking it to even police activities, okay? Uh, people in the under this burge, you're right, he's... Uh, to me, criminal, people were also suffocated, beaten, uh, had guns forced into their mouths. So um, there were people who, which I recall, I don't recall the exact names of the individuals, but they were subjected to mock executions with shotguns put to them. Um, So what I'm saying is not just here in Chicago, you have this kind of license to assault and torture. And this is consistent which what I would call, and again, this is my interpretation of police forces that act as shock troops to maintain segregation. Let us not forget that uh, in the 50s, what the police forces, not just in the South, but in the North, they were there to reinforce segregation. And I believe they continue to do so today. And that, to me, is one reason why there was such a prevalence of uh, police violence uh, state to state. I do want to say to your listeners that there also is what I would call political hypocrisy and how distinctions are made between what I call upper-class criminality and the criminality, supposedly, of the masses. What we see currently, let's get to the Obama administration, that um, which I find personally somewhat despicable. He gets on the airways and he condemns the 
to me, uh, legitimate anger that people in Ferguson and elsewhere were expressing at police violence. But yet the U.S. government, even during the Obama administration, maintains the prerogative to maintain secrecy in the face of its own criminal acts. For example, this administration uh, has been actively seeking to punish whistleblowers and to prosecute individuals who expose indiscriminate killings of civilians through the use of drone warfare. You want to talk about a terrorist activity? There's one right there. Need I say, and I know, Steve, we've talked about this on more than one occasion on your program, every Tuesday, President Obama puts together secretly what is known as kill lists, and that is to target people who the president believes, acting as judge, jury, and executioner, to send drones and to simply... Um, kill them. Now, you also have an attorney general who's about to depart who refused to prosecute what I would call upper-class criminality for those Wall Street people. And at the same time, um, incredibly, he would have us believe that we should trust him to conduct an independent investigation of violence committed against the powerless, especially against the police forces, what they did in Ferguson and elsewhere. So we have Obama, we have Holder. Let's shift to now New York City Police Chief Bratton, I believe his name. I think so, yeah. Yes. He, Mr. Mr. Bratton is, is not, in spite of what recently happened in that, what I call the choking death of that uh, unfortunate individual, he's not going to prohibit police from using chokeholds. So again, this is simply a sanction for police to have a license to choke and kill. But again, what I find troubling is that there is a culture around this in police forces that these practices are technically prohibited, but Bratton kind of looks the other way, and police forces still um, use this kind of tactics on Really, persons that could be, how do I put it, talked down without having to choke them to the death, uh, without having to choke them to death. Certainly, we have this kind of culture in support of this. I recall hearing, to my disgust, at a recent comment, maybe I'm sure you heard of it too, Steve, of it was made by former mayor of New York, Giuliani. He refers to what I call, and this isn't an exact quote, but he talked about what uh, a culture of criminality and African-American communities. So he makes the racist argument that simply says, well, they're getting what they deserve because these people are simply criminals. But putting aside the racist argument for the moment, even if there is a higher proportion of criminality in the African-American community, and that has been disputed by many an academic, that does not justify beating, shootings, and killings of innocent people by the police. Now, also, I would ask your listeners to keep in mind that police violence is also a symptom, a symptom of what I would call an underlying issue which supports, and I have no problem saying this, a license to kill on the part of police forces. Now, putting aside the all-too-cozy symbiotic relationship between police and prosecutors, there is also what I call a criminalization of poverty, in which people who are struggled, whether it's Ferguson or elsewhere, uh, they're considered a threat to the well-off. So when people of, of color and the poor, not, not to mention demonstrators and activists, um, the role of the police 
is antagonistic for obvious reasons. They are fearful of the police and for good reason. Now, if you look at the various scenes, and again, I don't want to recount all of these terrible shootings, what do we see the police doing immediately when they come into an area? Right away, there is excessive use of, of violence against um, people of color, um, and as I mentioned, demonstrators as well. Simply, this is more of the politics of fear and the police coming in as a what I call an occupying army to terrorize communities. Now, there is what I call this kind of unconsciousness of this, what I call police mentality, behind a culture from which they carry with them what I call stereotypical and racist conceptions of people of color. Now, let me give you just one example. This, to me, was quite striking. If you saw uh, the test, you heard the testimony of Darren Wilson, he described Michael Brown, and again, this is not an exact quote. This is what I recall as a par- my paraphrase. He called Brown a large, violent, pr- um, probably armed black man. Pretty close, I believe, what his testimony was. Again, the depiction of black people as simply these brutes that are out of control and need to be dealt with violently. That's kind of the underlying aspect of these police officers who engage in these kinds of activities. But what it leads to is what I call wholesale, unrestrained police violence. Um, And the existence of an institution, I dare say, that is lawless in practice in many regards, because there is simply no way with a few exceptions, which I'll get to a little later, to halt this kind of obvious criminal behavior. Andrew, For if instance... I, if, if I could add one sure, thing. Sure, please, please. Uh, there were two police officers uh, most people know were slain in New York, and yes. indeed that's a great tragedy. Certainly the family, they deserve better than that. Whatever these cops were, good, bad, or otherwise, they had a right to life like everybody else. But it bothered me greatly last Saturday when there was a funeral for one of the two police officers, Officer Ramos, and uh, and uh, apparently thousands turned out. Uh, uh, Vice President Biden showed up. The New York Governor Cuomo showed up. New York's mayor showed up. Of course, the police commissioner showed up, which he should. And Obama, before the uh, the uh, the occasion, before the funeral on Saturday, sent a message. And I wrote an article about this. And the theme of my article was, who moans for all of the black people that police kill one every 28 hours? Who moans for these people? It's it's rare that anybody remembers a name like Eric Garner or, 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 or Amado Diallo. Yes. Uh, uh, Sean Bell uh, gunned down by New York cops, I believe New York police, on, on the eve of, of his wedding, coming out of a celebration yes. in the evening, threatening mm-hmm. nobody. Uh, Diallo murdered by, uh, I remember this because I just wrote about it, police fired 41 shots at him. Yes. He was standing non-threateningly in, in the vestibule of his apartment building. 41 shots fired at him, 19 hit him, killed in cold blood. He was unarmed. He didn't threaten anybody. And this stuff goes on, on and on, all the time. And most of these people, you never hear their names, you never hear anything about it. If there's anything mentioned, it's maybe a two-liner on a back page of a newspaper. And, and yet all these people, including Obama, mourning the death of one policeman, what about all of the black people that nobody gives a damn about? And that was the theme of my article, Andrew. Yes, and I want to elaborate exactly what you were saying. As you probably recall, um, at the same time, they turned their backs 
on the mayor when he went to the, you know, the, how do you say, the induction of, of these rookies into police. And you have this kind of culture in which you start to hear voices, certainly Giuliani is the most, um, how do you say, prominent voice, which they tied the shootings of these police officers to those who demonstrate against police violence, as if to say, you see, you people are responsible for the shootings of these police officers, when I'm sure you know this person was a very troubled individual who didn't just shoot police officers on that day. I believe there were other people who was on a shooting spree. So he wasn't even targeting police. But again, this is just a way to say, don't question the authority of police. We should be free to do what we like. And anyone who dares protest, they are encouraging violence against police. And that, to me, is just a troubling distortion of what the actual issues are. But again, getting back to this, what I call police culture, that uh, cops protecting cops no matter what, if again you look at the unfortunate killing of the 12-year-old black child, it was done by an incompetent cop who had been assessed by a previous department, and he was yet hired by another police department. So again, there was a sense that police... Uh, the institution of policing is kind of insular, is onto itself that allow such an incompetent uh, police officer to be rehired and then to act within. By the way, I'm sure you saw the clip of the the video. He fired at one second. Okay, he saw one second. He fired and he killed this 12 year old uh, child. Now, um, again, the police. This is part of what I again keep discussing, as I have on other occasions on your program, the police coming into communities, uh, black, um, as an occupying army. This is certainly no coincidence that this goes on while the police have been increasingly militarized, getting all their, you know, incredibly destructive stuff from the military, from, you know, stores. But they re- still there's a broader problem to me, that the police are, again, looking at people of color, looking at poor communities, and immediately saying criminal. But I'm saying being black and being poor, in terms of what I consider the extreme use of force to shoot and kill, is being considered, in terms of police culture, whether it is conscious or unconscious, a crime. So, again, um, we must look at what are the... Uh, effects of this, not just for people of uh, of color, but again, even with the police and the criminal justice system have criminalized the homeless who are out on the streets. So if you are down and out, the police now do what I call start to funnel you into the criminal justice system. So if you are poor or black, young and black in the public realm, these people have frequently become targets for police harassment. If you recall the choking incident, they this whole thing escalated from someone accused and not proven that he was just selling loose cigarettes on the street. So again, it's this escalation of from harassment to killing is quite troubling. Now, we also have what I call people of color who seem to be what I call out of place. People who don't stay where they are, don't go where they belong, like Trayvon Martin. And he was shot by what I call a would-be cop. But also troubling, let me get back to the reference to Darren Wilson and the um, terrible shooting of Michael Brown. 
And again, this to me speaks of what I would call still an unconscious culture of rewarding such acts, whether some people would accept this or not. But Wilson received what I would call a financial award for killing Michael Brown. He received $500,000 for his first post-killing interview with ABC News reporters. I believe his last name is Stephanopoulos. Oh, yeah. I didn't know that, Andrew. Yes, he did. Yes, oh, he my did. goodness. Great. But there's more to it. There's more he got. He also received $1.5 million <laughs> from donations, and he's probably going to get more from what I call celebrity fees. So this is Wilson getting what I call a bounty for killing a person of color. I don't believe someone should be rewarded financially for shooting um, you know, an unarmed civilian. Okay. Now, um, let's talk about so much for what I would call Obama, who hailed, and so many commentators, I think now they're eating their words, that the United States is living in a quote-unquote post-racial era, to the contrary. Now, because this police are killing people of color, and again, I repeat, I have no problem saying this, they assume a license to kill, they are both outside the law and protected by the law. And that, that's what I want to focus on, how they also protected by the law. And again, this is a pattern, and I do want to make reference that there have been a few exceptions, but I want to first focus on the pattern. Um, the pattern is simply that if the police perceive that anyone may be a threat, they have a, a license to shoot and to kill. There is no enforcement of any objective standard to punish arbitrary shootings and killing. It's all a matter of police uh, perception. Now, this fast factors into what I want to get into now, how they're protected by the law. If you look at the police by and large, and I'll again get into some of the particulars in some states, police basically when they shoot and kill, they are immune from prosecution because they, are, they have what I call very close ties to prosecutors. That even an incident, any kind of incident, again, if you look at the, whether it is Michael Brown or any of the other shootings, to get an indictment from a grand jury, we're talking about an extremely low legal bar to prosecute. So what I am saying is that the prosecutor is more or less responsible for steering the grand jury wherever the prosecutor wants to take it, and therefore the prosecutors by and large, and again very striking in the Michael Brown case, simply set up the whole grand jury process so it would not indict um, Darren Wilson. Again, it was I, not the only person to say this. Other people have said this as well, that it is pretty much unheard of to have a possible defendant testify for four hours, which Darren Wilson did in a grand jury um, proceeding. So in a sense, I am saying that if you look at that case and there are others, the prosecutors are essentially protecting police misconduct. The prosecutors are protecting the police from having to face legal repercussions for these fairly arbitrary uh, police shootings, again, with a few notable exceptions. And I find um, that it's interesting that the police impunity represents the what I call a domestic flip side of legal immunity, which, by the way, protects U.S. troops overseas. I don't know if your listeners are aware of this, but um, when U.S. troops are sent anywhere, when they are deployed, they enjoy the protection of what is called SOFA. It's spelled S-O-F-A. SOFA stands for Status of Forces Agreements. 
And in a nutshell, this status of forces agreements gives um, U.S. troops immunity from prosecution under the host country's laws. So I am suggesting that there is a parallel here to be drawn between the police as acting as an occupying troop uh, force and U.S. troops overseas, giving them kind of what I call legal immunity. In a sense, if you look at the United States and many states, prosecutors are given police a what I call status of forces agreement. Um, immunizing police forces from prosecution in the killing of persons of color in the areas they occupy. And this, to me, is quite troubling. Now, if you look at this, apply it to the failure on the part of, for instance, the Ferguson Grand Jury and the failure in the notorious Eric Gardner case, unfortunately, is not surprising when you consider the history of police violence. These investigations uh, amount to little more than what I call non-prosecution. But again, what is the pattern here? There is a pattern clearly of prosecutors unwilling and in some ways unable to prosecute police uh, misconduct and police shootings and killings. Now, I want to point to just, if I can, in the time is in the limited time I have as quickly as possible, some cities, one which I know you are quite familiar with, Steve, is Chicago. I'll make some reference to my native New York, as well as New Orleans, L.A., and Oakland. But I'm sure, as you know, in Chicago, there are an enormous number of uh, incidences where the police have clearly stepped over the line. I mentioned the early, the early incident in Chicago, but you can go much further back to the very late 60s. I believe it's somewhere in the neighborhood. I don't know the exact date. I know it was in December of 1969. You had oh, the I, case... know, I know what you're going to talk about. Oh, I know okay. exactly what you're going to talk about. <laughs> yes, go the ahead. Black Panthers. Yes. Uh, Dave Hampton and, yes. and Clark killed in a police raid, which drew attention um, by the Cook, State, uh, Cook County State Attorney's Office um, and again, this was part of the FBI's COINTEL program. There was somewhat of a public outcry, which did lead to a civil rights investigation. And here is the bottom line, though. Even though 90 shots, I repeat, 90 shots were fired um, and one shot was returned, the grand jury did not indict the police. In fact, even though the case did eventually come to trial under a federal statute, the judge uh, dismissed the case. Again, not uncommon in your native uh, Chicago, but I'm sure you may also be aware of what took place also under the auspices of Cook County State Attorney Richard Daly, mm. who knew of but did not investigate police officers who, by the way, used confessions by torture. Many of these persons who um, were tortured gave what I call false confessions, sent to prison, and in fact, sadly, 10 ended up on death row. Now, anyway, let me move out. I'm sorry. I, I, just a quick mention. Uh, sure. The killing of Fred Hampton took place six months after I and my family moved to Chicago. It, oh. it was a shocking case. It, re it really shocked me. And, and, and the only downside for the for authorities was the attorney general was a man named Henry, and I believe. Yes. If, I, if, I, if, I, if I'm pronouncing his name exactly yes. right. And he was uh, the supposed heir apparent to the elder uh, Mayor Daly, Richard Daly. I keep getting them mixed up. Say, two, two Richard Daly's. One a 
an M and one a J, and I keep mixing the two of them up. But he was the apparent heir apparent. And because of this incident, he never got a chance to be mayor of Chicago. So that was the only the only thing that affected the authorities. But but Fred Hampton was murdered in his bed while he slept. Yes, exactly. And if you look at Hoover and the whole COINTEL program, now you might recall, I don't remember the name of the individual, he was... Um, he infiltrated that um, chapter of the Panthers, and he was working with uh, Hampton. I believe he put him, he gave him some powerful tranquilizer. I don't recall the name in, in Kool Aid that he drank, and that put him to sleep. He then called the police, and they came barging in and went on this, you know, what I call they executed him. Um, yeah, that's true, but. Now shifting to another city, which again, here's the pattern, and I'll try and keep this short and to the point. We have New Orleans, pretty close to Chicago when you look at police brutality. You have in 1980, you have the case of white detectives responding to the killing of a white officer by essentially going into that section of New Orleans known as Algiers. They killed four people on a shooting rampage, and they tortured um those suspects who they brought into custody by what's called uh, booking and bagging. And that was, again, um, assaulting them with telephone books, suffocating them with bags over their heads. There were eventually seven officers indicted by the Justice Department for civil rights um, violations. But again, this is part of the pattern. No officers were charged with the four killings, and essentially the officers were legally um, let off the hook. Now, a more recent example, which to me... Uh, also troubling in the area of New Orleans in, nine, in 2005, took place after Hurricane Katrina, where you have a New Orleans police um, department officer fatally shooting an unarmed person of color. His name was, by the way, Henry Glover. The other officers who found out, they, you know, they, how do you say, they maintained the thin blue line, and they burned his body to cover up the crime. Uh, in it, and what I call inept investigation followed. The Civil Rights Division of the Justice Department finally got into this. They indicted the officers and obtained convictions. Now, here is, again, something that tends to happen legally, which I say there is somewhat of a bias in the whole appeals process. The Court of Appeals overturned the verdict, um, but there was a retry. But the shooter cop who killed Mr. Glover was acquitted. Now, let me um, speak just very briefly to, again, the pattern of all this in my native um, New York. In 1997, and you've already referred to this, Steve, we have the notorious incident of NYPD officer who attacked, assaulted um, Haitian-American, Abner Luima, I believe his name. I'm not oh, sure. Oh, I friend. remember that name too. Yes. Yes, Abler Luima. It was in a precinct station. He was taken. This was a pretty despicable act of. Sodomized, I believe, was it? Yes, he was. He was. He was um, taken to the police, the precinct station bathroom, and the officer, the name escapes me, shoved a broken broomstick up his rectum. Um, again, this is. Um, pretty characteristic of a pattern of police brutality in New York. And you mentioned this one, and two years later, four officers of what was called New York NYPD's Elite Street Crimes Unit 
fired 41 shots at, I believe it's Amuda Dayalo. A Guinean uh, immigrant. And at the time he was shot 41 times, he was simply reaching for his wallet. Okay, so um, these officers were indicted. The case eventually moved to upstate New York, and regrettably, the grand jury acquitted the police. Now, again, I could go on and on. The last reference I want to make, just to show you the pattern, it's not just in any particular state. We have Milwaukee, very recent from 2007 to 2012. We have a unit of white officers, which were part of what was called the department's Comstock program. This was a program of what best I can characterize it, of aggressive policing. They stopped and illegally, um, how do you say, enacted body cavity searches on more than 70 African-American men who they claimed were dealing in drugs, which was proven to not be true. But during the searches, many of these were incredibly performed on the streets. The officers reached inside the men's underwear and probed around their anuses and genitals. Again, there was an indictment by the Milwaukee County District Attorney on various counts of sexual assault, illegal searches, and official misconduct. Here again, we see the protection by the law. They were allowed to plead to lesser offenses of official misconduct and illegal strip searches. One officer received a 36-month sentence. The others, by and large, again, I don't recall the names off the top of my head, but they didn't get more than a month in jail, as best I recall. Now, let's move on beyond the state examples. And again, I want to return to what I said at the start of your program. These well-documented instances of police violence have some relation to the official sanction of torture on the federal level. In a way, the federal government is setting what I call an example and a standard, which the police, by the way, are, are a simple arm of the state. They are the state's what I call coercive arm, is there to enforce. But when you have a government such as the current one, the Obama and I can even say the previous Bush administration, that essentially is acting without restraints and and permits on a national level police officials to use force and violence with little or no account. And again, I know, Steve, you'll recall I've said this on many a program. We have essentially, which unfortunately the corporate media does not want to dare suggest, which I suggest and I have written about, we have a police state. Now, I say this is a police state when you have such unrestrained conduct and killing on the part of police. Remember, the police, as an arm of the federal government, are entrusted to monopolize the use of force and violence against any and all perceived threats, and that is simply people of color, demonstrators, and the poor. Now, these police acting as a police state enforces simply its prerogatives as what I would call an expression of an authoritarian idea of might makes right. And if you look at some of the arrogance and some of the statements made, certainly by the what I would call the mouthpieces of this kind of mentality like Giuliani, Giuliani that's exactly the mindset that we say it, you're not to question us. It's an authoritarianism of might, what I call might, might, might makes right. But once again, in linking the prevalence of police violence to the torture report, Here again, we have this in common, and this, if I have to 
pick one thing that is most troubling, that if you look at the torture report, you look at what police have done to people in custody and to the shootings and to all that kind of violence and physical assaulting, there is a, a, a very, there's a very basic reason why this is carried on, because the targets are considered less than human. Now, so when we talk about police violence, we talk about CIA torture in the torture report. Simply what I would dare suggest to your listeners that as what they have in common is the physical abuse of those defined by their otherness. Meaning that you target people for violence, you torture them, you, um, you kill them because they're not like us. And I am saying such mistreatment as contained in the torture report, as carried out by various perpetrators and torture carried out by the police, they have been socialized to dehumanize people. Simply, you do not torture, you do not shoot and kill someone like you. That's what I mean by the otherness. But you can do this to a group you consider what I call less than human. Now, here's what I want to do to further illustrate this getting into some of the key highlights of the torture report. Essentially, there are six crucial aspects here in that 500-page ceremony. And that was a summary, Andrew. <laughs> yes, exactly, 500 pages of the summary. And again, summary. so much was excluded, as I hope I have time to discuss in your program. But what I want to get at is the six what I call crucial aspects. Um, number one is what I call came out of the report, I'll briefly mention, as I'll briefly mention the other five, is what was referred to in the report as the well-worn water, waterboards. Interesting that prior to the report, the CIA had previously claimed only three detainees were ever waterboarded. But now we have the Senate report, and this to me is important. We have um, a photograph, I, I was recoiled when I saw this photograph, there's a photograph in the report of a well-worn water board surrounded by buckets of water at a detention site where the CIA claimed it never subjected a detainee to waterboarding. Translation, the CIA has had, based on this well-worn water board, a consistent policy of waterboarding many detainees. So again, CIA is not being quite truthful in saying they only waterboarded three. Now, Edward, after, I, I, I yeah. would mention one thing. Uh, the, man, the man I believe wrongfully accused as being uh, the uh, main uh, uh, plotter and involved in the 9-11 uh, event, I don't think he had anything whatsoever. Well, he didn't have anything to do with it. Uh, colleague Sheikh Mohammed, yeah. uh, he was waterboarded something like close to 200 times. 183 times. Yeah. <laughs> I'll get to that in um, the second, yes which is the near drownings. That's also what is um, a section, a subheading of the uh, torture report. Now, the CIA had previously asserted, and now the Senate report uh, begs to differ, that waterboarding was not really harmful. But at least I say to somewhat the credit of the Senate report, we have now some indications in the report that waterboarding was physically harmful. It led to um, awful convulsions and vomiting on the part of those subjected. Now, in the case of what you mentioned, um, I think it's uh, Khalid 
Sheikh Mohammed. Yes, he was waterboarded 183 times. Now, what I say to your listeners is what's in the Senate report, this 183 times that he was waterboarding is referred to in the Senate report as near drowning. So again, clearly this is a form of torture um, used against this individual so many times that they were literally close to torturing him to death. And other people, without getting into the particulars in the CIA black sites and elsewhere, were tortured to death by the CIA. Now, as for number three, the other subsection in the report, there's a reference to what's called a salt pit. Now, to make a long story short, the salt pit is the notorious uh, CIA black site in Afghanistan. Now, untrained... Uh, CIA operatives conducted unsupervised interrogations in this notorious uh, cell, pit, uh, cell, cell salt pit. Now, what is to me significant about the Senate report is that they, they characterize it, and again, this is all paraphrased, as a rogue operation run by junior officers with no experience. So this was kind of what I would call, and I don't mean to make light of it, free-for-all torture. This was something they were learning as they were doing. And the Senate report came to the conclusion that these employees at the site lacked proper training, and I, this is a direct quote I took from the report, had histories of violence and mistreatment of others, end of quote. So clearly, again, this is a program that was out of control. That was not to say that it, it should have been in control, but it does speak to how torture takes on what I call its own life. Now, as for number four, this to me clearly illustrates some very specific examples of torture as discussed in the Senate report, and that is what is referred to in the section known as standing on broken legs. And the report refers to November 2002 of a detainee who had been held partially nude and chained to the floor who died from hypothermia. The reason in part for this person's torture and death was the common practice of, how do you say, torturing and breaking the limbs of individuals and then, how do you say, chaining them and suspending them in stress-inducing uh, positions. Very common. But again, this was also well-known even before, I must say, before the report. Now, as for section number five, what is referred to in the subsection as nonstop interrogation. Here we have, starting with Abu Zabri, I'm probably mispronouncing that, um, and with other detainees, the CIA was using harsh techniques without trying to first elicit information without threats and torture. And just as a side note, if you recall, during the Bush administration when the CIA was, I don't recall who exactly it was, um, were sent to Guantanamo Bay to observe the torture. They refused to participate to their credit because they believe that the best way to get information is not to subject an individual to threat and intimidation, but to try to get cooperation, you know, peacefully. Now, the Senate committee did conclude that torture continued, in the words of the report, nearly nonstop for days or weeks at a time. This is a clear pattern of torture, which at least I say to the Senate report it was willing to acknowledge. 
Now, this next one to me is a no-brainer in terms of it constituting torture, uh, according to the uh, Senate report, and that is what is referred to in the subsection of forced rectal feeding and other practices. Pretty gross stuff, and I'll um, just mention here a few particulars. What the report mentions were detainees who were subjected to what was, what was referred to as rectal feeding. Also, there was a reference in the report to what was called rectal hydration. And this is all done without a medical necessity. Now, again, I don't claim to have any medical expertise, but what the report does discuss that when you give an individual an IV infusion for, to give fluids, to you know, give nourishment, this is usually safe and effective. Now, when you give something called a rectal, rectal hydration, this is not for any medical purpose to, how do you say, give the person fluids or food. This is what the report refers to as a form of behavior control, i.e. torture. Now, not just that is what the report refers to as other practices. Persons in the custody of the CIA were, re were routinely deprived of sleep, which meant staying awake for, listen carefully, up to, the report says, 180 hours, sometimes standing, sometimes with their hands shackled above their heads. Some detainees were forced to walk around naked or shackled with their hands uh, above their heads. At other times, naked detainees were hooded and dragged down corridors subjected to physical abuse. I need not remind your listeners about the notorious photographs of this that took place at Abu Ghraib. Mm. Now, what I do want to say and qualify the report is that um, the Senate report is just what I would call, and I'll explain why I say this, the tip of the iceberg. Now, for all that is in the report, that it somewhat gives us some new details, I do want to bring to the attention of your listeners that at the same time, the report omits a number of important questions and details, some of which I want to discuss. Now, as I said, there were, as you know, Steve, there were a summary, a 500-page summary, which is um, more or less a summary of the larger 6,000-page released report. But again, I'm sure you're aware there's much omitted, even from the summary and in the larger report about the CIA's interrogation, rendition, and detention program. Hmm. You don't see in the report. That's what I, what I want to discuss now. Now, here are some of the examples, which I call pretty blatant omissions. Um, if you look at the report, whether it's the summary or the full-page one, you'll find that none of the names of the interrogators uh, who supposedly committed these quote-unquote enhanced interrogations or what I call torture were ever interviewed. So it's not a who's who. This is very abstract and vague. Also, you won't see there clearly omitted is the question of what role assumed by Syria and Libya in the CIA rendition program. No discussion. And they were prominent players at the time. Also omitted behind the, I'm sure you know, Steve, the enormous number of redactions that for those who looked at it, and having looked at it, I would include myself in this, there are some portions that are clearly incomprehensible because of so many of the redactions. Now, 
Also, there are no references to who gave the orders to torture, and that to me is incredibly important. There is a chain of command. Torture did not happen. There was a bureaucratic structure in place. There were commands given from the top, which I'll get to. But also, there is a question to me, which is a present question to ask today. What role did the Obama administration have in supporting the CIA program? As um, I have had an interest in looking into, they've kind of maintained the program. Now, as to the question of the names of countries which were involved in the CIA program, again, hidden behind redactions, redaction after redaction. There's no reference to the role the U.S. had in turning over detainees to Syria, a main center. No references to detainees turned over to uh, Jordan and Egypt, which many have referred to, and I agree with, were what was called uh, torture central. Um, no discussion on the Obama administration efforts to block the release of photographs and documents, which would have provided further evidence of prisoner abuse in Iraq and Afghanistan. That's part of Obama's moving forward. But also important, uh, the Senate... Uh, report did not address the role assumed by senior Bush administration officials, Dick Cheney being prominent, who had a clear role, as others did, such as John Yoo and others, in constructing and authorizing the program. Above all, no references to possible, possible what I call remedies. For instance, what I would call, perhaps it's politically naive for me to say, no remedy to, um, in the sense of offering a commitment to the rule of law and due process, to have some sense of accountability to prosecute the perpetrators and decision-makers of this CIA torture program. No mention at all. Totally, not even redacted, just, just not there. Andrew, it's just like cops having license to kill uh, the, to the U.S. torturers, including the top officials that authorized what went on. Uh, no culpability at all. And I would mention it's been a good while, uh, a, a real good while, a, a number of years. But there was a, there, there was, and I don't know what they're doing now. But there was a group at Seton Hall University, uh, led by a uh, one of, a professor there. I forget his name. I could look it up in an old article that I wrote, who, who said from the research that they did that somewhere on the order of 95% of the prisoners are taken, either by a local government handed over to CIA and so on, were simply randomly picked up for bounty yes. and they committed no crime. So if yes. you didn't like your next-door neighbor, you could turn them in and get a bounty, uh, something like uh, 5000 per Al-Qaeda, I'm sorry, 5000 per Taliban, 25000 per Al-Qaeda, and, and, and the vast majority of these people were simply in the wrong place at the wrong time, or maybe a neighbor didn't like them. And this is what went on. And, and the CIA people knew this, but they wanted bodies, so they did what they did anyway. Yes, and if you look at look at the fate of many of the Guantanamo detainees, they've been released because they simply, um, even they had to admit they had nothing on these people. Yes, exactly. I recall the large bounties uh, given, yes. But now if you fast forward and look at Obama, I dare say with some degree of pessimism, I would uh, argue that he's likely to continue with the policy of what I call stay out of jail, free cards, um, given the fact that he proclaimed, and again, this is not exactly a direct quote, he wants to move forward. But I do say there is one, what I would call, glimmer of possible hope, but this is outside the United States, for any possible chance, who knows, in the future of prosecution, 
If the perpetrators choose to travel abroad and are apprehended and brought to trial under the principle of what is called universal um, jurisdiction, that principle means that, that a government commits itself because it's signed on to various treaties to enforce international law. Now, dare I say, it would be a nation which takes seriously, which the United States does not, what is called the UN Convention on Torture, which, by the way, the United States is a signatory as of its signing. Now, the question, of course, is that we are nearing the new year, uh, the future, possible future of U.S. use of torture. Now, what is known, I would dare suggest, that Obama did not ban torture in 2009. He reshaped how to torture with an executive order, simply the techniques to fit into the U.S. Army Manual, which he says complies with the Geneva Convention. But what he did not tell you is that in 2006, there were some fundamental changes made to the Army Field Manual. If you look at Appendix M, this contained techniques banned by the Geneva Conventions, which are now in practice. And by the way, under Appendix M, there are 19 approved new methods of interrogation and sanctioning of extraordinary rendition. Now, what are some of these 19 methods included? These, to me, as far as I am concerned, and others in the human rights community, are techniques of torture. Isolation, sensory deprivation, stress positions, chemically induced psychosis, this is torture. Oh, now, is torture. There's no question about that. And uh, I've never been in isolation, Andrew, but I've certainly written about it and what psychologists say about it. And I remember in one of my articles uh, mentioning something like, uh, try locking yourself in a window, windowless bathroom for 24 hours with enough food and water to get by, but you can't leave the bathroom or any room or any room uh, for 24 hours and you, can't, and you can't get out for any reason. And just imagine the horror that you'd go through. Now imagine spending the rest of spending months or years or maybe even the rest of your life under those conditions. If that, does, if that doesn't drive people mad, I don't know what would. That is torture. That is terrible torture, worse than physical torture. Yes, and if you look at I'm sure you're aware of, this is quite prevalent in the prison system where with Supermax and the general use of isolation techniques, which now there are lawsuits pending, I don't recall which particular ones, to outlaw this practice in the prison system. Yes. But again, getting back to the torture um, continuation in the future, if you look at, again, the Senate report, I dare say, which to me is also quite troubling, that what is still contained in the report is a very small faction of torture used by the CIA. In fact, I want to bring to the attention of your listeners something to me that is troubling. It was a statement made in 2009 by then um, retired Admiral Dennis Blair. Dennis Blair was Obama's Director of National Intelligence, and I took down exactly what he said I, in my notes that he told the Senate Intelligence Committee that the Army Field Manual was amended, as I mentioned earlier, but amended to allow new forms of harsh interrogation. But that's not the most important part of his statement. He did go on to say that these techniques are classified. Mm. So we don't even know the full extent of some of these additional methods of interrogation, which obviously must be torture if it's being hidden from public eye. 
Andrew, I wish we could go on. The music means that we're out of hope. Oh. But it is really shocking that a nation that has the audacity to call itself a democracy and a champion of human and civil rights does this not just occasionally to people. It does it on a wide scale. It yes. does it abroad. It does it in America. And so often, it, I mean, it's important enough to do it at all, but so often it does it against innocent people who deserve much better. And the major media practically say nothing about any of this. And even the torture story that came out in headlines. It's buried and forgotten now, Andrew. Nobody yes. talks about it now. Andrew, I wish you a very, very happy new year. I'll keep following the same, stuff. Steve. I, 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 I look forward to getting you back. I'm meshing your schedule with mine. I'll certainly keep in touch, and it's wonderful every time you come on. Thank you. I appreciate it. I look forward to it. Thanks, Thank Steve. Thank you, Andrew. A very happy new year again to my listeners. You too. Thank you. Bye-bye.